first youth group meeting. Thank Greg and Joy. They uh, led us over their house. We were swimming in the pool. We played some volleyball in the pool. Um, had to do the traditional boys versus girls, and of course, boys won. Um, then I wanted to um, test it a little more, and I said my wife and I would play the rest of them. So we were on one side of the pool. All the teenagers were on the other side. I think we might have lost. Still up for debate. But um, there is something about um, not wanting the younger generation to ever beat you. Um, I am not old enough to where I don't care. I uh, refuse. I would rather die to the death, even though it's a stupid uh, game in a pool, than let young people beat me like that. And the reason I say all that is I feel like it kind of goes along a little bit here with Genesis in this dream. Um, as I've looked at this passage over and over again, um, I, it, my mindset was always, uh, hey, Jacob favored Joseph. That's why they hated him. That coat just drove him nuts. And I think all those things are true. And at the same time, uh, this dream that he has uh, about... Uh, them bowing to him, I think puts him over the edge to the point where it's in the context today that I haven't seen in other ways before. And so there, there is something about us, especially if you're an older sibling, that you think, how dare my younger sibling think they'll be better than me one day? Or that somehow I will have to respect and bow to them. Um, and so let's turn to Genesis chapter 37 again. I'm sorry if my voice is a little groggy. It was all my yelling that we shouldn't lose in the pool. We will start again in uh, verse 18. Now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. Then they said to one another, Look, this dreamer is coming. Come therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into the into some pit, and we shall say some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you so much that you are worthy to open the scroll. Lord, that scene in Revelation is just so uh so deep that God the Father would be sitting on the throne with a scroll and and John is sitting there weeping. There's no one in heaven on earth or below that can even look at it. But there's one, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who looked like a slain lamb. You were worthy to open that scroll to remove the seals, to look at it, to read it. Lord Jesus, we just, before we even start talking today about who you are and your word, we just want to continue the thought that you were perfect and uh, how heaven was pleased when you died on the cross. And... uh 
we just we admire you for it. We admire you for fighting the fight, for finishing the race your father gave you without one blemish on the record. Thank you so much again, Lord, that one day we will never sin. What a tremendous act you have done that you will sanctify us completely. Thank you for your word. During this time, I pray again, you'd control me by your spirit that we would, uh, it would just not be another Sunday, that somehow you would do uh, a mighty work, that we would grow this day in our faith in you, that we would uh, put away sin, that we would uh, strengthen one another, Lord, that we would be a people that come together and are like-minded in the purpose that you have given us. We pray that you'd be honored and glorified. In your name, amen. What is uh, the big deal with these brothers? When we look, and it says, we shall see what will become of his dreams. Basically, they're almost calling Joseph a liar. You have told us that you've had these dreams and that somehow one day we will bow down to you. Well, guess what? If we kill you, what happens to your dreams then? We can actually eliminate this dream of yours by simply putting you to death. Once we put you to death, we'll realize that the dream will never come true. That we will never bow to you. Because you'll be dead. We will still be here. Kind of a crazy idea. And yet, as we start uh, having this series about how Joseph reminds us of Jesus, does this not remind us of some of the accusations on the cross? Turn to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 39 says, And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him, now if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. So you see it's the same kind of accusation in some way. They're looking at a man on the cross saying, If you said you're the Son of God, how can you die? You're the one that said, Tear down the temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. That's impossible if you're going to die. This worldly attitude towards things of the Lord, never once stopping and saying, hey, are the statements true or not? Just saying, you know what? What you're saying is not true, and I'm going to prove it to you by putting you on a cross. Or Joseph, it's impossible for us to have these dreams come true because we're going to kill you. And so what I thought was so interesting 
so interesting about this is how ironic it is. And the providence of God through the story. It's interesting that we humans constantly can get upset with some of the sayings and teachings of Jesus Christ because it's true. However, the interesting thing is no matter what we do or how much we try to ignore him, nothing will stop the will of God. Nothing stops the providence of God. So isn't it interesting in this story that we might have heard since we were little, that as these guys are trying to prove we will never bow to you because we're going to kill you. That even in the middle of that story, they go, ah, wait a minute, let's just sell you. Actually, if you kill them, you will be right. The dreams won't come true. But actually, you sold him. And it's so easy for us to look back at the story and go, and actually, this, it did come true. You are going to bow to him one day. And it's because you sold him to Egypt. If you would have killed him, you wouldn't have ever bowed to him. But in your hatred towards him, you don't even understand the providence that God is doing. You have no idea that through your malicious acts, you're actually making the dream come true. Now, I say that I know that God's in control and it's that whole will thing. I'm just telling you how I see the story. It's amazing to me. That there are, that there's religious leaders looking at the cross, looking at a man beaten beyond recognition. This one that claimed to be son of God that has done nothing but help people. And they're accusing him. How will God feel when he, when, when, you know, now that you're dying, if you're the son of God, why don't you come off the cross? Because he's the son of God, he can't come off the cross. It's the most ironic in God's providence ever. They're sitting there saying, you said, destroy the temple, and in three days I'll build it again. That's actually taking place on the cross. That's actually taking place. They're mocking him, and they have no idea the providence of God that the temple is actually getting destroyed and it will rise again in three days. Some of the other statements around the cross to me are just, again, I, I don't know if ironic is the right word. I don't know, uh, you know, but I've just always been, it just kind of takes my breath away and I, I take a step back when they say, let his blood be on us and on our children. Yeah, that's exactly why he's there. Yeah. And they have no idea the, the, the deep spiritual things they're saying. Let his blood be on us and on our children. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what you need. I want us to think in these crazy times about God's providence. He has said different things will happen in the end times. I don't know if it's the end times, nor do I really, it doesn't really bother me. Because of where we're at today in this story. God's timeline is going to happen regardless of how we feel or think. And Christians are just getting really upset, I feel, about timelines, about what's happening. And I'm not saying we shouldn't get upset. I'm not. I'm just saying 
I think we need to, again, take a step back and go, the timeline is set, people. When God wants to come again, he's coming again. When he wants the Antichrist to rise, he's rising. When he wants one world government to come, it's going to come. For us to think that we have a peace in that, it's kind of mind-boggling to me. Again, I'm not saying we should be silent or anything. I just want to encourage us with the positive. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that Jesus Christ stayed on the cross? I wonder, you know, through, through all of it, was there ever, and again, this is glorified imagination, was there ever a time where the brothers finally later on in Egypt went, can you imagine if we killed them? We would have died of a famine. Isn't this ironic? I want us to remember that God has plans for us. And that we can kind of thwart that plan through our disobedience and the idea of our own personal blessings of our lives. But God's providence, God's will, no one's going to change that. There's a day where he comes again. It could be tomorrow, it could be a thousand years from now. Our point is to just love the plan. <laughs> love the plan. Love the fact that you're on his side and you're adopted. Get to know the plan. So if you want to look around and see what's happening, okay, but go by the book. Read the Bible. There was a story that I liked about God's providence. It says, on the front porch of his little country store in Illinois, Abe Lincoln and Barry, his partner, stood. Business was all gone. And Barry said, how much longer can we keep go this going? Lincoln answered, it looks as if our business has just about winked out. Then he continued, you know, I wouldn't mind so much if I could just do what I want to do. I want to study law. I wouldn't mind so much if we could sell everything we've got and pay our bills and just have enough left over to buy one book, Blackstone's Commentary on English Law. But I guess I can't. A strange-looking wagon was coming up the road. The driver angled it close to the store porch, then looked at Lincoln and said, I'm trying to move my family out west, and I'm out of money. I've got a good barrel here that I could sell for 50 cents. Abraham Lincoln's eyes went along the wagon and came to the wife, looking at him pleadingly, face thin and emaciated. Lincoln ran his hand into his pocket and took out, according to him, the last 50 cents he had. I said, I reckon I could use a good barrel. All day long, the barrel sat on the porch of that store. Barry kept chiding Lincoln about it. Late in the evening, Lincoln walked out and looked down into the barrel. He saw something in the bottom of it, papers he hadn't noticed before. His long arms went down into the barrel as he fumbled around. He hit something solid. He pulled out a book and stood petrified. It was Blackstone's commentary on English law. Lincoln later would write, I stood there holding the book and looking up toward the heavens. There came a deep impression on me that God had something for me to do, and he was showing he now and he was showing me now that I had to get ready for it. Why this miracle otherwise? I just I, I want to encourage us with the practical application. 
uh, of the the irony in the story of Joseph and how it makes me think of Jesus, that there is numerous Bible stories where it seems like people are doing the wrong thing and on the wrong path, and God's providence is going through. And I think, again, the Bible says over and over that we should remember, that we should remember. And so when is the last time we as the people have remembered in our own lives God's providence? How did you get here? How did you get here? It is so easy to forget as the years go by. What happened 5, 10, 15 years ago? How did you get to the place where you were? Can you not see God's hand in it? It's good to remember those things. It's good to think about those things. You know, in the story here, even though I think their motives were completely selfish, I do. Is there one little piece here where the brothers could have also thought, not only are these dreams getting us upset, but they're getting our father upset as well. You remember before in the chapter when Joseph tells the dreams, his father rebukes him. And then it says that Jacob kept the matter in mind. So the sons heard a rebuke from their dad to Joseph saying, stop talking about these dreams. Now again, I think they were mostly selfish. There was part that they knew would even upset the father. There's this thing, and the reason I say all that is, are they completely wrong about the way their their father actually felt? Jacob's been through a lot in his life, a lot of deception, a lot of family craziness. It's so interesting that it says he kept the matter in mind. I think Jason at this point, I'm Jason, Jacob, um, he's going to keep the matter in mind. He's seen too much in his life to just go, okay, this is another dream. It's kind of like he's sitting there going, uh, okay. He rebukes him and then he goes, let's remember this dream. Let's, let's think about it. So are they just upset saying, hey, you know, dad's upset too. I don't know. But what it does make me think of is, again, how those religious leaders even selfishly joked about how God must feel towards Jesus. Did you catch that in Matthew 27? Let's read it again. In Matthew 27 and verse 43, it says, He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. I got to tell you again, um, I'm constantly, uh, um, I shouldn't say constantly, but I've tried to make it a point that I would learn something new in the crucifixion story. Um, I I just, there's always something else in the story. This is one of those verses. I just, I'm sure I've read it a hundred times and never really looked at it, that they would sit there with Jesus on the cross and say, if God will have him. The NAS says this in that translation, verse 43, he has trusted in God. Let God rescue him now if he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the son of God. 
how twisted can their minds get that they would say, as Jesus Christ is dying on the cross, do you really think God's taking pleasure in this guy? Will he have him? This guy who claimed to be the son of God, and now he's just dying like a mere man. What does God the Father really think? We talked about Messianic Psalms today already. And I want to go again to one of them. Psalms 22. Psalms 22 and verse 7. says, All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And then it keeps going through what he went on the cross. But as we know at the end of verse 21, those four words, you have answered me. Guys, I'm encouraged practically when I look at these scriptures that the view of the cross is so many times misinterpreted. And yet, again, maybe irony is the word. These religious leaders are sitting there, and and God the Father has never been more pleased with His Son than in that moment. God the Father, as we read earlier, I mean, it's almost, I heard someone say something like this, like it's almost too holy to really feel, to, to figure out all that happened on that cross between Jesus and his father in heaven and, and, and below and, and everything that went on during those hours. It's almost too holy to talk about. But I do know this, is that God the Father 100% completely loved his son when he was on that cross. And he absolutely was proud of him. How do I know? Another passage that might be familiar in John 10, 17. It says this. Therefore, my father loves me. Why? Because I laid down my life that I might take it again. Now, there's a lot of reasons I'm assuming God the father loves his son. And there's a lot of things that God can say about his son. I just know the verse here says one of the reasons that he absolutely loves him is because he laid down his life. He laid down his life for him. So again, the irony of on the cross where Jesus is and you have religious leaders mocking and saying, basically, God doesn't even care about you. It is completely opposite of what's actually happening. That God the Father has never been more proud. And he absolutely loves the fact that his son is laying down his life for the very ones that are mocking him. The sin of what they are doing is getting paid for. What an amazing time.
There was a story said a few years ago, the Harry S. Truman Library in Independence, Montana, made public 1,300 recently discovered letters that the late president wrote to his wife, Bess, over the course of a half a century. Mr. Truman had a lifelong rule of writing to his wife every day they were apart. He followed this rule whenever he was away on official business or whenever Bess left Washington to visit her beloved Independence. Scholars are examining the letters for any new light they may throw on a political and diplomatic history. For our part, we are most impressed by the simple fact that every day he was away, the President of the United States took time out from his dealing with the world's most powerful leaders to sit down and write a letter to his wife. Why am I saying that? How can they be so off? How can they be sitting there blasphemy and angry? And it's just a gross scene. Who wants to sit there and see a man die and mock and say, God doesn't even really like you anyway? How can they be that off when the reality is that God and the Son have a relationship that we just can't even fathom? So what? why am I saying all this? I want to show us again of why we should love Jesus. It sounds basic, and it's what we've always heard, but the story doesn't get old. It's because he laid down his life for us. Why should we try to not get it wrong? (laughs) Why should we be students of the Bible and interpret it correctly to not get it wrong? Why? Because he laid down his life for us. He laid down his life for us. And there's nothing but love on the cross. In the middle of a people that are doing anything but showing love. Joseph, again with his brothers, that whole thing. For for Joseph, we'll actually read later on. It says he had anguish of soul. When this is happening, his brothers are turning him in. Stripping him of a, a of his clothes, embarrassing him, that he might you know not be clothed. Put him down in a pit without water, maybe a slow death, literally dying of thirst, and then think maybe they changed their mind. Here comes a rope to get me out of the pit. Oh no, I'm selling you away. I'm going to make money off of you. There's absolutely no love there, none. And there's no love at the cross from the people doing it. It is God's picture and definition of love. I'm laying down my life for you. It is for you. I do love, again, some of our practical application. One of the uh, utmost for his highest daily devotion said this, Jesus does not ask me to die for him, but to lay down my life for him. Peter said to the Lord, I'll lay down my life for your sake. He had a magnificent sense of the heroic. For us to be incapable of making the same statement Peter made would be a bad thing. Our sense of duty is only fully realized through our sense of heroism. Has the Lord ever asked you, will you lay down your life for my sake? It's much easier to die than to lay down your life day in and day out with the sense of the high calling of God. 
We are not made for the bright, shining moments of life, but we have to walk in the light of them in our everyday ways. There was only one bright, shining moment in the life of Jesus that was the Mount of Transfiguration. It was there that he emptied himself of his glory for the second time and then came down into the demon-possessed valley. For 33 years, Jesus laid down his life to do the will of his Father. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us. We also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. 1 John 3.16 These pictures of Joseph reminding us of Jesus. I just, I hate asking myself the question, who am I in the story? Am I Joseph's brothers or am I Joseph? Am I those nailing them to the cross or could I be like Jesus having a love for people and laying down my life? Finally, I just want to end up with this. I just want to make us remember that sin has consequences. When Joseph, uh, you know, when they when they sell Joseph, and we know that they now um, kill a goat and pour blood, and so they can show their father a bloody coat. I have to tell you that, in some ways, it's a young goat. His potential was cut off. That goat should not have died, except for the fact that now they're covering up a sin. Sin always cuts off potential. Here's another consequence of what happened in this story. Their father was depressed for life, I think. It says in Genesis 37, 35, Then all his sons and all his daughters got up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. In fact, the only time he stops mourning, it would appear, is when he knows Joseph is alive again. But there's one more thing. You know, guilt followed them their whole lives. Guilt followed them their whole lives. In Genesis 42, I don't want to, you know, steal someone's portion. We can hear it again, though, if it happens. It's God's word. It's okay. In Genesis 42, verse 21, when they're meeting Joseph, it says, Then they said to one another, Truly we are guilty concerning our brother, because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. For that reason, this distress has happened to us. Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not tell you, do not sin against the boy? And you would not listen. Now justice for his blood is required. How long has it been when they meet him in, jo- in Egypt since they've done this, and it's still fresh on their mind? Is this bad thing happening because of what we did? Guilt carries a long way. Switch over to the cross again, as you read here. Um, the story, they sell him for 20 pieces of silver. Judas sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And then he hangs himself. Guilt. Again, there's a lot of different um, feelings people have towards Judas and, and, and all that stuff with remorse. So I don't know. All I know is he killed himself. Killed himself and threw the money back on the floor. Messed him up. It messed him up. And so why am I even bringing these things up? I guess irony is the, the word of the day. The reason Jesus is on the cross, as Judas uh, you know, is going through this, is to take care of that sin. Jesus died on the cross and, and Judas trading him in 
for 30 pieces of silver is not unforgivable. It's not. And yet his guilt might overwhelm him. Judas missed out. that The one that he walked with for years, he saw the miracles, he heard the teaching, he traded it all the way, and then he killed himself. How can you be that close to Jesus Christ on a daily basis and miss the whole point? How does it happen? I don't know. But it makes me a little nervous. As we have continually tried to say from this pulpit now for a couple months, it seems like it seems like the world's getting a little crazy. It's always been crazy, but it's getting a little crazier. Are we missing out on spiritual things right now? I got to tell you, there's some of us in this room who I might not have ever talked to. And if I say, how are you doing spiritually? That conversation might last two seconds. But if I say, what do you think about the vaccine? We'll talk for hours. I just, again, we are a people that miss it over and over. Why is it that some of us might even have sin to confess, and it's so hard to talk about sin, but it's so easy to talk about what the president said this week? Which one's more important? (laughs) Why is it so hard for us to talk about our spiritual state in this time? And we clam up, and I thought maybe we just don't know how to talk. But when the right topic comes, we all know how to talk. We have no problem talking. Is Jesus Christ not the right topic? How is that possible? Is talking about us saying, hey, I I, want to live a sinless life. I, I need help. Is that not the right topic? I... I feel depressed. I feel guilty. I feel like God is far from me. I need help. Is that not the right topic? It's just another biblical story of people who just dealt with that stuff their whole lives and maybe never dealt with it. We could be different by God's grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you again for who you are. Lord, uh, uh, the cross is just, it's so deep, all the things that happened there. You have so much forgiveness for us. You have so much love for us. Help us to see the reality of your divine plan to let us make you more important than other things. 
to realize that you are the way, the truth, and the life. In your name, amen.